Welcome and thanks for joining us on The Pivot, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we'll be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors in a meaningful way. We have prioritized guidance and practices that advance equity and remove barriers for the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized and oftentimes excluded. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the punitive approaches that often form part of institutions and a new opportunity to connect families to holistic and culturally relevant community supports. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to improve child and family safety. We hope that you will use these short yet meaningful dialogues to engage in discussions within your own organizations. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good afternoon, good morning, depending where you're joining us. We are so excited for today's conversation. We have two very special guests to share their expertise and knowledge with us on language justice. So excited to have Noemi Gonzalez Rocha and Liliana Herrera. And can you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do? Hello, my name is Noemi. Thank you so much, Wendy, for having us here today. I am first and foremost, language justice advocate. I am also former child interpreter, and I am also an interpreter both in the healthcare as well as community and in the legal system. And I love all of those roles, and I am so happy to be given the space today to share a little bit about it. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here. My name is Liliana, and I, too, am a language justice warrior, lover, advocate, consultant, also an interpreter and translator and a cultural worker, utilizing music and the arts to connect communities, to bridge uh, communities. And I really see the connection between language and culture and the arts. I believe they're all in one and that's where my heart is. That's what what I do. (laughs) I can tell. And I wish that our audience could see uh, both of you talking about it. And I definitely can tell that there's passion and there's heart in the work that you do. So thank you again for joining us. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start. I, I love storytelling. You know, my my grandmother used to do cuentos when we were little. And so I'd like to start our conversation uh, telling you a little story. And I think, you know, when I hear your introductions, I can definitely relate to a lot of that. So I am first generation American. My family uh, immigrated from the Dominican Republic to New York in the late 60s and 70s. My grandmother had... Some people say 12, some people say 13. So it's between those two uh, kids, right? And so this is a time where, you know, your siblings could actually petition 
and get visas for folks to come. So they came in groups of two and three. And when I was born, I was born in Harlem, but my family for a really long time uh, lived in Washington Heights, which is uptown Manhattan. There's a lot of Dominicans there even today. So I, you know, I grew up in a world where I didn't think about language, even though I spoke two languages. Um, Spanish is my first language. And so I remember never feeling, you know, I, I started in Spanish, but never really thinking about it because we were, we operated in an environment, quite frankly, that we, we just didn't need to. So the post office, uh, the spoke Spanish, you know, the grocery store, the churches, mm -hmm. the doctors. And so that's, that's where I grew up. You know, my, all my first, I have like 55 first cousins and it was kind of like a similar story. Very rarely did we have to go into a place with our parents to interpret, right? Because there was Spanish speaking people all around us. So fast forward to maybe like around eight years old, seven years old, we moved to Massachusetts and my life changed completely, right? So that was a time where literally there was not a lot of Spanish speaking families in the part of Massachusetts where I, where I was. And we went from, you know, being, um, feeling like we were at home to really being um, isolated, you know, and, and just feeling the brunt of the change. Um, and that's when I started interpreting, you know, um, my, my dad talked a little bit, but my mom, not so much. So everywhere I went or she went, um, she, she would bring me along. Right. And so when I think about, um, stories like this, I, for one, know I'm not the only one, right? Cause that's like a, a story that you could hear in, in one version or other from different families that immigrate. I think about this topic we're talking today, right? We're talking about, and I love how you, you really center it around justice, right? Um, but I guess my first question, you know, bringing that story to mind, I, I think is, can you tell us a little bit about what are the principles of language justice? You know, what does it mean to, to you both? And maybe talk about the distinction between language access and, or is there even a distinction between language access and language justice? So many feelings come up um, as I listen to you. And I am going to start by saying first, and, and then I'll get to the question that I believe in my bones that having children interpret for adults is a sort of violence against a child and against the adult, you know, the child who's interpreting and the, and the adult who is being deprived of something called communicative autonomy. And that is the right that every person has to be in control and be responsible for their own communication. Mm -hmm. And when you have a child interpret for a parent, a grandparent, a tío, a tía, etc., what's happening is, is that, mm -hmm. first of all, we're reversing the roles of who's responsible right. for whom. And that creates sometimes, you know, a trauma that some people may not be able to overcome in their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's not even touching upon the immediate injustice to the person 
who is receiving interpretation from their children because how can a child be prepared to deal with many of the things that an adult may be needing interpretation for, whether it's healthcare access, uh, a type of social service, maybe a legal service. And I mentioned those three because I have seen folks use children in all of those three fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that is just, it shouldn't happen, period, no. under any circumstance. Now, with regards to where I see the difference between language access and language justice. I'm going to bring a visual into this conversation. Please, yeah. If you remember that that graphic that shows the difference between equality and equity, actually, there's a, a, a new graphic that includes uh, justice and liberation. Yeah. And I'm going to stay with the original, right? Equality yeah. and equity. And I see language access being to language justice, what equality is to that comparison to equity. And so I think um, language access only stops at saying, we're going to give everyone a one-fits-all interpretation or translation service without understanding the individual needs, the background of the person uh, for whom the service is being provided, um, and and stops way short. And uh, very seldom does it actually meet the needs of of the folks who are in in need of service. And, okay, I said I was going to stop at equality and equity, but I'm going to take it a step further. Um, I think if Justice is if we really get to um, understand, we take this this kind of standard of um, we are going to communicate today as though we are, and, and, and moving forward, as though we're all speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. So what are the things that I need to do? I, who may be the person in a position of privilege, who works for the institution, mm-hmm. organization, etc., what can I do to make sure that however we have this meeting today feels like we speak the same service? So what do I need to provide? What conditions mm-hmm. do I need to provide to make sure that this, you know, not just equity, but justice moving forward? I love that. Thank you so much, Marmi. Liliana? Um, no, I echo so much of what uh, Noemi has articulated. And, you know, the way I think about it as well is if we think about language justice uh, in a way that it aims to dismantle like outdated silos of exclusion where only one culture and one language perpetually dominates the narrative, the policymaking, um, education, healthcare, everything, right, in our society, <clears throat> then um, we have to look at, uh, we have to go beyond access because access might be, for example, let's say we have a bridge that's going to connect you from, uh, in my neighborhood, from San Francisco to the East Bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's access to getting there, right? But if the bridge is not maintained, it mm-hmm. is not funded, it is not kept up, that to me, like, I um, align that with the justice part of it, right? Where is the follow-up? You know, you can create, you can uh, have an ordinance, but if it's not being upheld, if it's not being respected, uh, if people are not being held accountable for doing so, then there is injustice. And to me, that's what signifies language injustice really uh, as Noemi also stated, you know, uh, giving the example of children 
being forced, being obligated to be interpreters for their parents in, in very, you know, precarious situations, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, uh, language injustice perpetuates uh, the violence uh, by, silent, by silencing, erasing, dehumanizing people. Yeah. Um, and their own ability to communicate and be, be heard fully and be present and yeah. be uh, uh, and be taken into account yeah. for their their whole selves. You know, thank you so much. And and I I you know we we we've talked about questions, but I want to stay in this vein just a little bit longer. You know, we uh, we've studied. I don't know if you you're familiar with Tema Okun's Habits of White Supremacy. Um, you know, we, we've studied that and, and, you know, internally in my department and also as an organization, we've had these discussions. But listening to you both speak, you know, it's like, yes, there's violence that's perpetuated when children are placed in these situations. But what does that say about the systems that we operate in? So I guess my question to you is, do you see a connection between language injustice or justice to institutional and systemic racism? I see that language justice is very, very much tied to social justice, to racial justice. And there is a wonderful quote that I, I love to use by um, the 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 last name right now eludes me. It's one of those things. But la escritora, la escritora, la escritora, <laughs> sí. <laughs> Gloria uh, Andalu. Uh, no, well, it, lo, lo, lo traeré. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, something about it goes something like this: My language identity is closely intertwined, and I'm paraphrasing to ethnic identity. I, and, and, and she ends that quote with, I am my language. And so you cannot separate the two. And whenever there, an institution doesn't address that, doesn't address how important it is to be able to communicate fully, to be responsible for, yes. for your words and for what you hear, to be in control of what you hear as well, right? Yeah. And make sure that, that everything is conveyed to you. There is dehumanization that happens with That's right. that, and um, inherently, that that is a, a racist attitude. Some people may not know it as such and that that's why we think about the work that we do as educational. It's mm -hmm. just kind of bringing awareness to that. Yeah, thank you so much, Noemi. And uh, the author is Gloria Ansaldua. Liliana, is there anything else you'd like to add in, in regards to that uh, connection? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I, I really am loving what everyone is saying here because references, for instance, in California, where I'm, I'm a native I'm from, well, first of all, I think of myself as the immigrant side of me is my European ancestry. Uh, and then my native side is not an immigrant. I'm actually from this land, right? And so that's the shift of my own mentality, my own mindset that is contrarian to my upbringing and what was inculcated mm. societally in, in, my, in my growth, you know, growing up here in the, in the U.S. and being born and raised, living on the border uh, as well. It gave me a different uh, perspective right. and it really made my, I remember as a kid being just so inquisitive about 
the rules, you know, the norms of what is right and what is wrong. And when my family and I were somewhere, we spoke Spanish at home, and I could see the rage and the anger from Anglo folks in my same community saying, like, where are you from? Don't speak Mexican. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like, well, first of all, it's Spanish. (laughs) And and then, you know, growing up, I would be like, why are they so angry? Like English and Spanish, for instance, in my own experience, they're both the languages of the colonizers from Europe. So they're not even number one (laughs) to start with there, right? Um, In California history, for instance, like right before the gold rush, when uh, gold was discovered uh, in 1948, it was like several days before the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, for instance, right? Which under that treaty, although it's not specified, everything was at that point uh, provided in English and Spanish, Mm. uh, including the uh, Constitutional Convention. It was conducted both in English and Spanish. The the proceedings were published in English and Spanish. And delegates unanimously approved a provision that guaranteed that bilingual publications would be part of California laws. And that soon shifted as more minors were coming in Mm -hmm. uh, and greed was exploding and Native communities were killed off. And so that's all connected to language, right? And so that white supremacist ideology does away with any other culture, any just erasure. Of people and and erasing people's culture, erasing people's language is erasing people. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? Wow, para los pelos, right? Just to think about that because, yeah. yeah, it's it's very profound. You know, my my and what I said was my my hairs stand on end. Um, by the way, do you guys notice that sometimes when you're doing the literal translation, it sounds so. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, like, I think in Spanish and sometimes I'm saying it in English. But anyways, I digress. Um, (laughs) Semantics. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's very profound what you're saying, because how can we center policies around our clients, our family survivors, if we're not even understanding, right, how some of these systems operate, right? And so it's like... For you, uh, for you both, and and maybe perhaps I can include myself, there's a hint of that. But I I feel like it's almost an obligation that we professionals have to really do your own work, number one, (laughs) you know, and understand where your blind spots could be. But I think, I guess my next question is, You've done this work. You're experts in the field. What is your vision for for language justice? Um, And we can start with Liliana. Well, thank you for that question. I would say it's to shift the paradigm by creating a more inclusive and democratic society. Because for me, I really see the alignment with language justice to democracy. Mm. That's where everyone can be in one room. Let's say, for example, a multilingual room. And everyone can express themselves fully and be heard fully. And that will happen by using the tools that we have at our disposal, right? Interpretation, translation, equipment, having materials translated. These are like specific Mm -hmm. examples of what it really means in a a tangible sense, right? And what we can contribute. 
And the other thing I would say is like my vision is for folks to really start to see for interpreters as, as well and for everyone to start to see that language is not a, a right for, uh, for one group more than it is for another. Mm. And uh, we need to work together. Language justice for me um, is a collective effort. It's like being in a team. And everybody puts their part in. And that part of the education, I think, is important when working with clients, for instance, that will will hire us and say, OK, well, we're, you're here. You take care of it. And it's like, no, 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 no. it's not. It's not just about us coming in and imposing our, our ways. It's about working together to see what where are the deficits and where, you know, are the gains and how we also value and see other people that speak other languages as uh, just as vital, as important, uh, as assets to the, to the work, instead of seeing it as like a deficit, yeah. people as a deficit to the work, as well as seeing changing from, I'm going to have an expense by hiring these folks or ha- having equipment, um, instead of I'm going to invest in my community, in my people, so that we can all learn and grow together. Yeah, yeah. That's the vision I love that. that I have. I love that. I love that, uh, Noemi. I am going to go back to what you just quoted uh, that I mentioned earlier. Do the work. And one of the, the, the things that I recommend doing is do an assessment of who you're serving, who's your community. And again, I, the way that I see it is if you have a clear vision of what it is to bring everyone to the table and, and a, a very much, um, I was going to say equal footing, but basically playing a very inclusive way and then work backwards. So know what you're aiming for and then work backwards. Many times Liliana and I and folks like like the two of us are called in and and basically we're asked to uh, provide a roadmap. And we cannot provide that. We can tell you where to start digging, That's but right. we cannot give you that roadmap. Your community will give you that. If you that. allow yourself to be guided by them and by their own experience and by what they need to be able to come to the table and meet with you, um, you know, with, with your voices, you know, in that conversation. And going back to what Liliana was saying, it's so important that you look at that work as not just providing interpretation, not providing translation and just bringing in interpreters to do that, but basically thinking, what do I do to center those other voices so that they matter? If you're, for example, a monolingual English speaker, why do we always have to think about translate or interpret or translating or interpreting into English or into Spanish? It feels like the, the people are being talked to as opposed to really being brought to the table to really have a conversation. And sometimes we'll hear that, like, oh, you're interpreting for those folks. And I will respond, oh, do you speak Spanish as well? And they'll say, well, no, then, oh, I'm interpreting for you as well. <laughs> and so I that, that. Shifts, that yeah. shifts things completely. So, uh, you know, as a medical or healthcare interpreter and and a court interpreter as well, attorneys. This is something that we do. Oh, you're interpreting for that person. And I love to kind of like to center language justice even a little bit by just saying, well, actually, I'm interpreting for all of you who are monolingual speakers in the room. 
Yeah. And and that's very important. Um, of course. But I'm, I'm going to leave it at that because yeah, I know that yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. have a, an opportunity to you continue know, to talk. Yeah. So many things come to mind. I'm so like, it's like, you know, a little kid at a candy store. I'm like, I want to ask so many questions. That's how I feel right now. But a little <laughs> parentheses, it's funny. It's, it's funny and it's not funny, but do you guys know who Bad Bunny is? Yes. So yes. he he won an award recently, and I don't even know what it was. <laughs> and uh, he started his acceptance speech in English and then shifted into Spanish. I don't know if you guys have seen the clip, but it's so it's so interesting because they were translating, right? There was prompts, like captions in the bottom, but when he started when he started speaking Spanish, it just said non-English. So there was like, you know, there's, there's, I read so many articles like, oh my God. And it's like, yeah, like English is not it, right? So it's like, how do we really shift the paradigm that it's like, this is, for, this is actually, there's a huge return if you invest in this for everybody. And it makes sense, not only for, for those who are most impacted when this is not in place, but even for, for, for non, like you're saying, for people that don't speak these other, uh, whatever other language that the family should speak in. But we, we were to be toying around policy and readiness, right? So I see, I visualize people, organizations hiring you as fixers, right? And then just like... <laughs> And obviously you're much more, but like, you know, in that predicament, right? Like, come here, help us with this thing, you know, and then thank you for your service, right? We're the cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with what you just said, Wendy, so I think where the system or systems can start fixing this issue is... First of all, decentering themselves mm-hmm. or decentering ourselves. I'm going to include myself there mm-hmm. because we all wield some sort of privilege, right? Whether it's yeah. because of the color of your skin, because of the you know your native language, the language language or languages you have learned, level of of, of you know the kind of access you had to education, the kind of access that you had to certain privileges, etc. So we need to start with that kind of analyzing our privilege and the way our privileges oppress others. That is one of the first things that institutions Mm -hmm. should do. Develop empathy, getting to know if you're a government agency, a nonprofit organization, et cetera, really get to know who are you working with and who are you supporting basically, or who should you be supporting? And when I say should be supporting, I'm I'm not talking really about, um, the need to support someone, but that we should look at ourselves in a supportive role as opposed to the person who gives a hand-me-down or who, you know, who is Mm -hmm. serving someone. I think it's important to also consider how we use language that way. Um, And for-profit or corporations are already doing a wonderful job um, at that, at communicating and serving their markets. They call it markets. We call it communities. Of serving course. Them well. Be- yeah. right? Because it means millions, billions of dollars for them. More. So they will communicate yes. exactly the way that we need to be communicated to. That's right. Because there, there are billions of dollars at stake if they don't. Of course. And I, uh, you know, Liliana mentioned this earlier, how sometimes some of the great 
social justice organizations that are doing great work, but who still don't get that they're still not there if they're not incorporating language justice in their work. Sometimes the way that they approach language access, because we could not call it yet language justice, is the way that I would approach fixing my car when I was in my 20s. And literally, I remember one of my brothers once sticking some gum to a I leaking <laughs> water line, right? Like we call our tios and tias to, you know, to fix something that really requires a well-trained professional. And, and here it's not saying, uh, I'm not saying that, um, you know, even when we say a, a trained interpreter, a professional interpreter, some folks may say, oh, um, now perhaps you're being uh, elitist, right? No, I'm talking about folks who really do the work to go in and learn what are the codes of ethics, why it's important to follow certain standards in order to protect that communicative autonomy that I was referring to earlier. Because mm -hmm. sometimes when we start using our tios, tias, children as interpreters, we, you know, if they're not properly trained, that could create a problem. Of course. So all of that goes into what should, you know, folks do to do the work. And so get to know your communities. Um, do not bring your tios and tias to do the interpreting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um you know, no, no gum to fix any of this and, um, and develop some empathy. And that I think can be developed if you get to know the folks yeah. that you're working with. I love that, Noemi. And, and Liliana, before I hand it over to you, I think the other thing you, you're talking about, there is also, you know, when we're thinking about readiness for organization, yes to everything that you said, and also be willing to change policy that's not inclusive, right? Because it's not a one and done. How are organizations, you know, thinking about practices, like their everyday practice in a way that's that's just, you know? And I love what you said about corporations, you know, in the business world, they're already seeing the, uh, the return on investment. Like they, if they don't do it, their business is going to suffer. So they do it, right? And it's interesting because in, in our world, it's been a little um, delayed, I, I would say, where people, organizations still see this as a um, something challenging, like that it's like you have to, uh, como venderle la idea todavía, right? You have to still sell the, sell it to them. And, and it's unfortunate, right? Because um, we're serving families that need it, you know? So, and I'm sorry to derail us a little bit, but Liliana, um, staying in, you know, around the, the readiness, is there anything else uh, that you think comes up for you when, when organizations are thinking about moving forward with this? Certainly, yes. Y gracias por la pregunta. Thanks for the question. I I feel that uh, cultural work, as a cultural worker, as I identify myself, um, is very, very important and linked to language, to communication, to empathy, right? Because when you reach people directly to their heart, then it's going to mean something to them to invest, mm -hmm. to become educated, to collaborate, to be inclusive, mm -hmm. because it, it kind of shifts the mindset, the colonized mindset. And when, mm -hmm. going back to what you said about how even in the nonprofit sector and our progressive circles, sometimes I feel in my own personal experience are like sort of like the last people to get it. 
in many respects. And that's because we're working from that colonized mindset continuously. And it's propagated continuously in every everywhere that we see, everywhere that we live, everywhere that we survive. That English only and English first, um, and Anglicized mentality is yeah. is is dominates, and everything else is like oh, the foreigners. And we need to shift that and say, well, first of all, we're not foreigners in our own land. One, number one, two, <laughs> number one, and number two, number two. We're not foreigners, so and number three, let's repeat it. No, but the, you know, language justice allows us to disrupt that privilege, right? Yeah. It allows us to to really shift the colonized mindset. And I say shift, but what I really want to say is to heal, heal that colonized mindset that not only oppresses others, but it actually really damages the people doing the oppressing mm-hmm. because a lot, everyone is indigenous. From one region of the world, regardless of our skin color, our melanin, we are all indigenous. And I feel that as Americans, uh, people from the Americas, not only the U.S., we are more connected in a sense to our indigeneity. And some folks that have lighter melanin, perhaps, from, uh, uh, from Europe, might be more disconnected from that. And so they don't, you know, I think it's a, uh, that's another podcast about mm-hmm. psychology, but... <laughs> But, I, you know, I see how intertwined it is. And so going back to my initial response about culture, I think we need to work together with artists. We need to incorporate the arts in a very meaningful way because artists are already doing all that work yeah. and, are, and are very underpaid and undervalued in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't tell you even my own family, people say, oh, an artist, like, no, you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, wait, uh, then why are you going to the movies? Why are mm-hmm. you listening to music? The, the entire world is influenced by the arts. That's right. And and people are compelled to take action when we feel the injustice, more than when we think it logically, more than when we read policy. You know, you could read policy and then you can see somebody on the street being hurt, being discriminated. What's going to compel you to, to, to step right. in and interact? It's reading the piece of paper or seeing the person being harmed. Mm-hmm. And that's why I feel, and I, and I do this myself, like um, sometimes I'm invited to perform, you know, or do storytelling uh, and to, in, in, in the nonprofit sector, you know, to kind of shift the way we use our brain also and the way we, we respond to things that has to come from the heart in order for that's it to right. really be meaningful change in the long term. Yeah. And so organizations, uh, agencies that really engage uh, that vision, then uh, are allowing themselves to include diversity, meaningful diversity. In, in other words, not putting like certain people in a corner and giving them uh, headsets and then monolingual English speakers like can be free and roam free. You can do whatever you, you want, do whatever you want. Like eighty of the of the uh, organizations, and you can speak an acronym. You can speak with your jargon. You can use whatever terminology and not care that maybe your jokes might not mean anything to the other person that you're interpreting for. So those little, those are the elements that are so meaningful. It's those little nuances that make a huge impact, a huge difference in the way that we communicate. Yeah. And when we start to see interpreters as communication partners instead of like servants with a microphone, that's where it also, yeah. there's there's a shift there too. Yeah. Right? That we're collaborators, we're collaborators. And that leads to empathy. 
in my in my personal yeah. uh, experience anyway. I wish I had <laughs> a, a a mic to just drop because that's like definitely you just dropped a mic. Mejor día esa edad ya decía mi abuela. You couldn't have said it better. I know that I said earlier that there isn't a one size fits all solution because communities like individuals have unique needs. However, there are a few fundamentals that apply to this work in general. One of them would be to do an assessment of the communities that you support and determine what their linguistic needs are. The second one would be to do a self-assessment to determine how well you meet those needs. In other words, where do you fall on the language justice spectrum? Are you on the end where you haven't yet begun considering offering any language services? Are you providing language access that is one size fits all? Are you at the point where you have realized that the so-called language access isn't really addressing the individual needs of your stakeholders? Or have you done this work already and the world knows it because you have developed a mission statement and values around it? And folks know that they can trust that in your space, their communicative autonomy will be honored. And the third fundamental would be making sure that any progress you make to advance language justice in your organization creates a cultural shift where language justice is a stated value that every stakeholder knows and embraces. And that this comes together with the right infrastructure and with the budget to support it. I'm loving this conversation so much. I'm already sad that um, this is, it's going to end soon, but uh, <laughs> we can invite you at another time to, to continue the conversation. I guess my, you know, my last question, and before I, I ask the last question, you know, we've talked about readiness. We've talked about steps that, you know, organizations can, like, what do they need? Um, and you've, you've illustrated it so beautifully, right? Um, they need heart and, and everything you said, And, you know, I think about, for example, the domestic violence movement. I don't, I don't really care for the word movement, but whatever. I think <laughs> about the child welfare system. Mm -hmm. And, and most of the, of, of, I would say probably everything that started in the United States is centered about white people, right? So it's like the child welfare movement started in the 1700s because there was like, um, orphans and churches and, you know, really it was white kids. I mean, at that time, literally it was white kids. You know, uh, the domestic violence movement starts with white women, right? Talking about shaping, right? And investing in ways that they thought domestic violence could be addressed, right? It was white women. And, you know, Fast forward to now, we've we've come a long way, but in, even in the service world, the way services, the way we understand services and intervention is very, it's centered on, on whiteness. And I'm thinking about the domestic violence movement and advocacy because it's almost like 
it hurts my heart because it was a disservice to so many women that were taking care of their own collectively. La vecina that would, you know, take the kids and and not call the cops, right? Like, and, and talk to the man. Another man would do it. Like, there's wisdom that has come from, from our culture, from our ethnicities, from our understanding, from our families that I think was interrupted you know, when something like the domestic violence movement began. And, you know, there's wisdom and knowledge in that. So my question is, what would you say is the importance? I mean, we know that the that's all we've talked about, the importance of this overall. But when you think about, from your perspective, domestic violence advocacy, why is language justice important? First, first of all, because... Just language, period. It is one of the most basic mm-hmm. rights that we all have, and that is not usually respected. Let's start with that. Um, and because every time that someone who um, has been uh, victimized, uh, you know, suffered domestic violence, whether it's a child or an adult, if they're not able to voice their hurt, the harm that has been done to them um, in a way that makes sense to them, in a way that they need to vocalize it, they're being victimized again. And not only that, but the, that harm is not repaired in a way that allows them to start healing. And I have seen it as, a, a, as an interpreter in, you know, there, there is a, a local, a Bay Area County okay. where I used to do a lot of, of those types of in, interpreting between families whose children had been removed from the home and, um, you know, the many professionals. And because they were not ready to provide an environment where language justice was a thing, mm-hmm. um, sometimes there, there were forces that instead of coming together, were pulling this family further apart. Even advocates who would not trust the interpreter, for example, it's like, oh no, you you know, uh, you need to speak to me or through me or let me speak for this person. When it should I be the that. parent who's speaking, not their advocate. I think advocates have their role. But it's because of a lack of understanding. I'm sure those advocates who sometimes would get in the way, it's because they they they, they don't know that inter- an interpreter could be their ally, someone who really uplifts the, the voice of that person. And there's the other thing that Liliana mentioned earlier. Culture is so important. And you mentioned the two, Wendy you know, how we deal with things in our countries. When when we come to this country and there's no language justice, we're pulled apart. You know, children are basically pulled apart from their families. An identity, for sure. Under a different set of values than the ones that, that connects them to their own roots. And that creates a sense of loneliness, a sense of being alone here, and of even wanting to push our parents away from us because then they start seeming like they're not there for us. And they're there for us. We just don't know it because these mm-hmm. main culture is telling us that that what our parents are doing is not, you know, what we're watching on TV, what the schools tell us. And so it starts with making sure that you have advocates who understand how important not pulling you away from your culture is. And that takes them learning about your culture, about your language, and about what you need to be 
communicated with in the very unique way that you need. I'm just going to leave it at that. Thank you, Nomi. Thank you, Liliana. That was beautiful, Noemi. Yeah, no, it was. I, and I, I, I echo uh, Noemi's beautiful sentiments. Um, I feel that, you know, because the voice of the survivor needs to move from the periphery to the center, language justice is is vital, right? And that that's the 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 roadmap per se. That's the bridge, right? Connecting connecting the person to the right. Uh, services that they might need, the, the resources that they might need, uh, don't always happen if you don't have the right structure in place, right? Mm-hmm. And so and so, in order for that person to have that autonomy to communicate, to express themselves and be understood uh, in a deep, you know, very profound way um, is, is essential. And that can't happen without language justice, without empathy, without acknowledging that this person's point of view is just as important and their language and their culture are just as important yeah. as a dominant culture. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. doesn't even have an official language. Um, and if we look at policy, let's start mm-hmm. there. The, uh, so we are, are already a multilingual, multicultural society. Mm-hmm. It's just that we need to start dismantling all those barriers that were placed by white supremacist ideology. Yeah, and that's, that's, the root, right. that's the root of it, you know, yeah. for me. Yeah. I don't want to stop. This has been so great. Um, I feel like we need a part two at some point, you know. Uh, <laughs> and three. Most, and three, right? <laughs> it's definitely, let's, let's do a series. Let's do a series. Um, <laughs> um, I feel, you know, that our audience will have in their mind, like, a very clear idea of what language justice is through our conversation today. They'll understand how to start thinking about readiness, right? Um, and I think we've even given them the action steps, right, that they can take moving to move towards a more language-just way. I wouldn't even say way of doing things, but seeing things, right? So much more I would love to ask, but I think we'll stop here. And I just want to say thank you so much for making time for us, for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom. And I really do mean it. We would, I would love to have a part two. Um, our audience, I know, will be just as excited as I was. But thank you so much for joining us, Noemi and Liliana. Thank you so much, Wendy. Really, it's been a great pleasure to be here in conversation with all of you and uh, I just want to say I'm I'm very fortunate to have Noemi as you know my stellar uh, a partner in this work, um, and there are more folks out there doing beautiful work as well. Um, but we just happen to be here in the same uh, geographic area in the Bay Area. Woo woo the Bay Area, <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and so um, yeah. No, thank you for the opportunity. Ha sido un gustazo estar aquí. Igualmente. <laughs> Noemi, thank you as well. Um, And yeah, I hope that this is just the beginning. So thank you both. And now I'd like to conclude with a beautiful poem by Gloria Ansaldua titled To Live in the Borderlands. To live in the borderlands means you are neither Hispana, India, Negra, Española, Nigabacha, Eres Mestiza, Mulata, Half-Breed, caught in the crossfire between camps while carrying all five races on your back, 
not knowing which side to turn to, run from. To live in the borderlands means knowing that the India in you, betrayed for 500 years, is no longer speaking to you. The Mexicanas call you rajetas, that denying the Anglo side inside you is as bad as having denied the Indian or Black. Cuando vives en la frontera, people walk through you. The wind steals your voice. You're a burra, buey, scapegoat, forerunner of a new race, half and half, both woman and man, neither a new gender. To live in the borderlands means to put Chile in the brooch, eat whole wheat tortillas, speak Tex-Mex with a Brooklyn accent, and be stalked by La Migra at the border checkpoints. Living in the borderlands means you fight hard to resist the gold auxiliar beckoning from bottle, the pool of the gum mistake, the pool of the gun barrel, the rope crushing the hollow of your throat. In the borderlands, you are the battleground where enemies are keen to each other. You are you are at home, a stranger. The border disputes have been settled. The volley of shots have scattered the truth. You are wounded, lost in action, dead, fighting back. To live in the borderlands means the mill with the razor white teeth wants to shred off your olive red skin, crush out the kernel, your heart, pound you, pinch you, roll you out, smelling like white bread but dead. To survive the borderlands, you must live sin fronteras, be a crossroads. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pivot. Please be sure to check out show notes for any resources referenced during the podcast. You will also find discussion questions, which we hope will help you, our listener, continue dialogue around these very important topics. If you know of any work happening in your community that would add to the national discussion generated by this series, please email us a summary of the efforts and work taking place to the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That email again is the pivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. We will be sure to get back to you. Last but certainly not least, we would like to express our deepest gratitude to Chance Taylor for all his support in editing all the episodes and to Sudubi Kuke for producing the series. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, your host, Wendy Mota.